1: If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io/dave for a 7-day free trial. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. Hey everyone, it's Dave Asprey with Bulletproof Radio. Today's cool fact of the day is that if you breathe the air on a bad day in Mumbai, India for one day, it's the health equivalent of smoking about 100 cigarettes, according to a recent, probably alarmist study. Uh, It's probably not great if you want to be an elite athlete, however. (laughs) Air pollution in general is bad for your brain. It can actually cause inflammation long before you end up getting like major coughing attacks and things like that. So air quality matters, especially indoor air quality, no matter if you live in Mumbai or anywhere else. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. Check out Qualia NAD Plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD Plus. It's what I use. Today's guest is a personal friend, creator of more than 130 workout programs, including treadmill trainer, iPod U workouts, the the amazing ab solution, and things like that. He's also best-selling author of Eating for Energy and the All-Day Energy Diet, which was a New York Times bestseller. I am talking about none other than Yuri Elkheim. Yuri, welcome to the show. How's it going, buddy? Thanks for having me. Good to be here. So, you've got this kind of crazy mission. You want to help 10 million people get in great shape and eat healthier by 2018. Uh, Yes, and 100 million by 2024.
2: That's... uh got to, you know, kind of raise the bar after 2018. That's kind of quantified. I mean, is that it? For now, I think, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, I, well, I don't know. We, I have no idea how that's going to happen, but I just know that setting the intention is just unraveling matters. things to make it happen.
1: Yeah, that 100 million number is there in my intention as well. So uh, awesome. we, we share that goal. It's one of the reasons I like hanging out with you when I get a chance. Totally. And you do some other things that, the reasons I wanted to have you on on the podcast, other than to talk about your latest book and all and keep people aware of it. Uh, is that you talk about how belief is the juice to propel you forward. And so that idea of of motivation and, and intrinsic willpower and energy is something you pay attention to. Uh, so we, we have a lot, a lot to talk about today. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is you're kind of a foodie, right? I'm a huge foodie. I mean, I live in Toronto,
2: which I would say I'm going to just put it out there. Toronto is the best city in the world for food. Yeah, that's so I love. You? I mean, I love it
1: it's great yeah, you might have made a few a few enemies with that because I'm sure all those I'm, Chicago I people are like no it's us but hey, actually eh.
2: I spoke to somebody who lives in Chicago or lives in Chicago and they said mm-hmm. and they'd been to Toronto a number of times like yeah Toronto
1: is so much better for food I was like I know it's amazing so it's great we're pretty blessed the last time I was in Toronto I think it was for a, a strategic coach session with Dan Sullivan and I was talking with a couple of the guys and there's two different church bells going off and one went off and then like 30 seconds later, the other one went off and one of the guys goes, why do you think there's two church bells? And and I don't know why it just came to me, but I I looked at him and I'm like, hey, uh, there's a reason for that. Like we're in Canada. So by law, the first one was in English and the second one was in French. Hmm. I
2: don't even know. I didn't even know that.
1: It's true. Amazing. That's great. It's you, actually, just enriched, you, you just enriched my life. That's I, awesome. I actually just like spun a complete line of BS, but it was a, <laughs> <laughs> it was a good answer and I really said that on the fly. I'm like, this is the funniest thing ever. And when everyone figured out, they're like, oh my God, that's actually kind of funny because <laughs> as you know, being a Canadian uh, citizen, everything here has a label in French and a label in English and they have to be equal sized, which means yeah. everything has super tiny labels and everyone in Canada has squinting problems from looking at tiny labels. It's another fact of the day. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, enough about Toronto. Let's let's talk about something else you do that's kind of cool. Your 30-second at-home eye exam. Yeah. Tell me about what you do with that.
2: So this is a really cool at-home diagnostic test for adrenal health. And it's not um, – it's never going to replace the salivary hormone test. But it's a good starting point. So a Flashlight? So flashlight. <laughs> I've, got, I've actually mine, a f- got mine right here. I got a little flashlight on this cool pen. So nice. you can see that. So what you do is you go into a bathroom, and it's not like we're not doing any kind of like Ouija board stuff, but pretty much like that. So you're gonna go into a bathroom, look into the mirror, close the door, shut off all the lights. You're basically in a dark room. What's this, what's supposed to happen here is that in a dark room, in a dark environment, your eyes, your pupils will dilate to allow more light in. So what we're doing with the flashlight is we're gonna take the flashlight and we're gonna shine it at about a 45-degree angle, uh, 45 degree angle at our eyeball. And in that dark room, uh, looking at ourselves in the mirror, our pupils should constrict. And if it constricts, then stay constricted. If it stays constricted for about 15 to 20 seconds, that's an indication that your adrenal glands are relatively healthy. So they're able to pump out the epinephrine, the adrenaline to keep those small little muscles constricted in your eye. However, I don't really know many people who have been able to achieve that level of, of kind of basic adrenal health. So, what ends up happening is a lot of people shine the light in their eye, it constricts for a second or two, and then it starts to pulsate and dilate again, which basically means that the adrenals are a little bit taxed, and they're not able to send those stress hormones to the eye to keep those muscles constricted. So, it's a really cool, simple diagnostic test that you can use then to follow up with a salivary, you know, a salivary hormone panel if you want to. So,
1: so I, I first heard about using this in uh, Dr. Wilson's uh, book on adrenal health like yep. one of the first ones. Um, is that sort of like the genesis for this or it, does it even have deeper roots than that?
2: Um, I don't know if that was the first place I read. Uh, I mean, I read his book as well, which was de- uh, definitely a great intro to Adrenal Health. And I don't even, I don't know if it was there or if it was somewhere
1: else in my, in, my in your, research over the years. In years of research, I, yeah. I, I, so, I understand that. But yeah. like, like you, uh, you know, I, I think I when I first read that, I was like, look, but everyone I tested at work, like every single person to a T didn't meet the standard. So I I always wondered if like maybe eight seconds or 10 seconds was maybe more apt for for normal people versus this sort of impossible standard, which means everyone has adrenal dysfunction, which a lot of people do, or at least mild. But it's an interesting quantified self-test maybe that that a bunch of people could run. And if a bunch of people who sleep enough and eat reasonably healthy and aren't complete stress cases, all of them are going for a little bit less than the recommended number. I just got to wonder if like, is the data right? Any thoughts on that? Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, how do you, quantify, like, everyone's individual, right? So, what if, like, somebody's adrenal glands are perfectly healthy, but in their body, it's represented by a 14-second constriction as opposed to a 17-second constriction in somebody else? So, I think there's always going to be a bit of variation. And, I mean, ultimately, like, the best data would be, like, okay, let's take 100 a, a people or 1,000 people or however many people that have, you know, perfectly normal salivary hormone tests in terms of, like, cortisol and DHEA and stuff. And let's test them on this test and see what their average time is and kind of cross-reference that. So I guess that would be the most accurate way to do it. But I think it's just a a decent starting point. Like If people start to look at their pupil and it's like, boom, dilating right away, that's a bit of a warning sign. So it's not the gold standard, but it's it's a good place to
1: start. Um, It's an awesome place. I I fully support your recommendation there uh, to use that as one of the simple things you can do that just lets you know what's going on. What are your seven energy commandments? Um,
2: so the seven energy commandments; these are things that are actually quite controversial. I would. Uh, it's funny because when I was on Dr. Oz, uh, they actually we had a we had to modify the segment because some of this stuff has not "quote unquote" been shown in science in,
1: in the literature yet. I, I heard that you guys actually had like a, a wrestling match on stage, and like Jerry well, Springer had to break you up. Is that true? Well,
2: it, what was what was funny? So we were demonstrating. <laughs> But then we're talking about the blood at one point, which is one of the – so one of the energy commandments is that um, energy really comes from the blood. So if your blood is sluggish and acidic, it's not able to deliver oxygen throughout your body because oxygen is kind of transported under red blood cells. And if your red blood cells start to kind of clump together because the blood is acidic as a result of some decrease in electromagnetic charges around the cells, like this is a – this this – what I just said is very – like taboo in the medical community they're like what the hell are you talking about
1: you, you I, I followed you on the clumping the the acidicness though I, oh, I have some questions for you about that later but all right cool
2: yeah so it's interesting i mean it's um it's one of those areas that is there's there's research out of germany that shows yeah. that there's changes electromagnetically that kind I mean, of uh, you, you can see them if you look at live blood cells like it's not blood, that hard but, to see <laughs> exactly so we had to modify the mm-hmm. segment because they weren't too sure if they wanted to go down that route so we kind of Diverted the discussion to the kidneys, where the kidneys kind of deal with the acid alkaline balance. So, anyways, in that whole, as we were pre- as we were kind of warming up for the show and doing our rehearsal, Doctor Oz spilled some of the quote unquote fake blood that they had on his shoes, and he's like, "I don't know <laughs> if I can swear on this show. I don't know <laughs> if I can swear on the show." But he dropped an f bomb. He's like, "Oh f, why would I wear my shoes? The first time I wear my shoes in rehearsal, I get this stuff on them. So it's was, it was pretty funny.
1: Yeah." So you're you're the man who got blood on Doctor Oz, I guess I guess so it's fake yeah, New York no, Times fake. best-selling author and bloodier uh, that's I don't know right. um, it's food yeah. dye food dye contaminator
2: contaminator. Um, so so that's that's kind of the premise no. of energy. And again, it's 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 a philosophy or it's an idea that's somewhat you know not as well accepted. Um, but what I've seen you know personally, as well as having done this with thousands and thousands of people, is that you know as you said, when you look at your blood under live a live microscope, live blood cell microscopy, it's, you can't really deny that. I mean, there's stuff that you see in your blood,
1: you're like, oh my God, like, this is crazy. So, Uh the reason for this just for people listening who haven't heard of live blood cell microscopy it has a bad name amongst medical professionals because they're trained to kill the cells make a thin little slide uh maybe stain them a certain way and look at dead cells but when you look at like cells swimming around you notice there are patterns in the swimming and i've gone through and had mine my my blood was extremely stuck together like long chains of red blood cells uh, when I was exposed to uh, heavy doses of mycotoxins, and I did some EDTA chelation, which is also medically shown to work, but also poo-pooed by science. And magically, when I looked at my red, my live red blood cells again, they weren't stuck together anymore. Like, oh, okay, kind of cause effect. So there is science here, but like you said, it is controversial science, right, Yuri?
2: Yeah. Well, and I'm just sorry. I'm just, I'm not, uh, I'm not ignoring you. I'm just kind of sifting through my phone to see if I can find a video that I have from a blood test that I did with a client. A little while ago, um, but yeah, it's, I mean, the way I see it is like, even though something isn't scientifically proven, doesn't mean that it's not valid, right? So it's something like if if we haven't proven something <laughs> yet, it doesn't mean that the laws of the universe are automatically going to change tomorrow and then it's going to be valid. So there's this kind of fine line between like mysticism and magic and what science is showing, you know, today. So I, I'm very, I'm a very science oriented person but i'm also very open-minded to be like you know what there are things that we can't explain i believe that the invisible is more powerful than the visible and even if we can't quantify something yet it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not
1: taking place or happening so the the first step there would be observation in science and and if the way you observe things is you say that didn't happen because it can't happen given the rules i believe then you're actually not observing and there's so much of that in just in society in general not to mention medicine and nutrition yeah, totally. And I think, you know,
2: it's it's unfortunate that so many medical doctors are so closed-minded to, I mean, as scientists, you know, you have a hypothesis, right? So, it's like, okay, this might be happening or not, but then you have to test it. So, instead of just kind of closing the door, it's like, well, why don't you actually take some of your patients through this process and see what happens? And I think, you know, just being open-minded is, is a really important thing. A really important aspect of just kind of moving forward in terms of helping patients, and and I think there's a lot of medical doctors that are obviously more open-minded than, than others, but if we we're to kind of just generalize the profession, it's it's a little bit you know they know what they know, and that's based on what they've been taught. So
1: it, it's it's shifting. Um, there are thousands and thousands of doctors listening to Bulletproof Radio right now, and I, I get emails from them, and, and it's it's re- it's really cool because. I, Half of them probably think that you and I are full of BS because we're talking about live blood cell microscopy, to be perfectly honest. And it's yeah. okay that they think that. Uh, like, we don't have to all agree on it. But can we say that there's an observation here and that we may not have all the explanation and that there's more work to be done there versus just saying we're not going to pay attention to it? And and it's that where do we put our focus? And I, I, want, to, I want effects that no one can explain. And rather than denying the effect, I, I want to quantify the effect and then figure out the variables because it's fun and maybe we'll learn something. Yeah, I mean, it's
2: like it's like your segment on CNN. I mean, people seeing that they kind of position you as this like crazy pill popper, and it's like they're they're kind of positioning it as like, are you sure? Like, are yeah, like, are you sure what you're doing is safe? Like, are you worried about the side effects? And it's like, I mean, why why are we not questioning <laughs> the massive amounts of pharmaceuticals that people are ingesting? We're probably ingesting more pharmaceuticals than we are fruits and vegetables on a daily basis as an average, and, and we're not really questioning that on CNN. So it's just it's funny how we. We have these kind of double standards.
1: Yeah, I had a, a chance to ask uh, one of the very uh, uh, Craig Venter, actually, the, the first guy to sequence his human genome for a hundred million dollars. I'm like, so we're still waiting on the, the fundamental, hardcore, like, like definitive statistical science here. But in the next five years, like, there's six million people like tuned in to listen to Bulletproof Radio. So, what should we do now, given our best efforts, or should we all just have pizza and beer and wait till the science is in yeah. and it, it, he was on stage on, at, at a Peter Diamandis event, which was awesome. And he, he goes, let's talk about that over pizza and beer. <laughs> and, and afterwards he said, Dave, you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't want to tell people what to do because I'm afraid I, I might be wrong. Like, it could be harmful, but, but your perspective you in and mine is that, well, everything is harmful. And so we might as well at least like choose what we think is the best path now, instead of just doing nothing until we're absolutely certain. And that may be a personal risk-taking tolerance. And as a, a biohacker, I'm willing to take that tolerance because I could just eat fast food every day and say, well, I don't really know for sure. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's not. Whatever. And assume there's no impact from that, which is false. Or I could just say, I'm going to do the very best from all the stuff I can do. And maybe maybe I'm wrong. But at least I try. Do, do you agree yeah. with that?
2: No, I do. Absolutely. And I think there's a big element of belief in there. I was actually thinking of like my next book is going to be called like the belief diet or something. <laughs> because I think like. There's so many uh, in this in this day and age of like so much information, we can become a little bit too obsessive about how we approach, you know, any aspect of our life, but especially our health. And I know a lot of people, I'm sure you do too, who they, you know, they think they're eating healthy and then they make one little slip-up, it's like, oh my God, I had this piece of bread and it's like the end of the world, or they're eating something that is not like at the pinnacle of health, and they start to beat themselves up. And I think energetically, it's like you, you kind of impart this belief that what I'm eating, oh, my God, this supposedly healthy food is not organic. Therefore, it's doing damage to my body versus just kind of accepting and blessing the food and allowing your body to just, you know, deal with it a little more naturally. So I think, you know, the way we, we, we kind of the, the energy that we emit onto our foods has a big impact on how we ultimately absorb them.
1: Yeah, there's some kind of mystical thing where, uh, you know, in, in a if you go to a ashram or you go to the uh, place in Nepal where I I learned Tibetan style meditation, like before you eat, you sit there and you like put your hands over your food and you like, you know, send love into your food and consciousness, and, and the rational part of of my brain, like the prefrontal cortex, is like whatever, dude. And then uh, the irrational part of the body, like the nervous system and the more instinctive things, it's like, all right, well, I'll just go with the flow. And I don't know that, that anyone other than maybe Lynn, uh, Lynn McTaggart, Taggart, the one who the field has, has really tried to pull together any real body of science about whether that has any effect at all. But maybe it just makes you feel better, which makes your body absorb well the food better. I have no idea. But there's, there's probably something about eating your food with intention that matters. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
2: I think uh, Bruce Lipton wrote the book, uh, Biology of Belief, which is yeah. really awesome. Uh, like there's the, um, uh, what, I, uh, the many messages in water for that as well. The, I think the many messages mm-hmm. in water by. Uh, A, the Japanese guy. Matsuru Emoto, I think, mm-hmm. like showing the difference, like just by emitting love versus hate to your water and how the crystalline. Uh, structure of the water changes like it's crazy
1: so, so, so people, uh, people yeah. listening to us right now had one of two reactions to those four books we just mentioned right either they're going these guys are such charlatans we should like go you know I, i'm i'm pissed right now you know i'm gonna go drive into a bridge uh or or not right but why there's a strong emotional response to asking questions about this i haven't figured out yet because i'm not saying that i know i'm just saying that there's something going on that we might want to measure and quantify and pay attention to yeah i think i mean i think when when we're when we're opposed with such violent opposition,
2: it, it usually it's it's because it's striking a chord that like is is against a deeply held belief. You know that it's like the dogma of oh this can only be true, and now we challenge like, hey, the Earth is not the center of the universe or the solar system, right? Like, I mean that's that's a huge statement, and for a long time that was accepted as as just fact, or the Earth is flat. And Copernicus and, and other amazing scientists and astronomers were, were able to kind of eventually get through the ridicule, even though they were kind of ostracized. And now we know that that's just that's just fact. So there's all violent opposition when anything when anything kind of new challenges the status quo. Uh, th-
1: there is, and and it's pretty annoying that we don't have like the world's hardest science to say this, but the, the understanding that your perception and my perception might be different. <laughs> <laughs> and there's there's no way for me to know exactly what your perception is. It makes this kind of science really hard. But there is there is something that I believe big data and quantified self can tease out from this where like, like we don't know everything about it, like dark energy or dark matter. But we're pretty sure it's there. So, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, it's really cool. Well, let's talk some more about the the things you talk about in, in your book. Uh, the most important food group. What's that? I believe the most
2: important the most important food group are greens, so green vegetables. And the reason for that is because they are uh, unanimously the most nutrient dense uh, as a, as a class of foods in terms of like phytonutrients and vitamins and minerals and so forth. And I don't think there's any research that I've ever come across that shows that eating less or eating more more green vegetables or vegetables in general is bad for your health.
1: Well, there's and, there's the the ones about raw cruciferous and thyroid suppression. I mean, there are very extreme cases where, like, people have problems from this. Well, so I wrote an extensive
2: blog post on my blog about this because I was getting this question so often. Because I Mm. I recommend, I'm a big fan of, like, you know, eating more of your vegetables in their raw state. So, juicing, Mm -hmm. smoothies, salads. And uh, the biggest question I get is, like, you know, what about the raw cruciferous vegetables? Like, aren't they bad for your thyroid? And here's the thing. Uh, So, I looked at all the data, all the research, and there's really very, very small, Correlation between raw cruciferous vegetable consumption at the level that most human beings would be eating. There was one case of a lady who was eating—I can't even—it was like five pounds of raw cruciferous vegetables a day, and like it just completely messed up her thyroid. But in the in the capacity that most people are eating them, it's so insignificant. And the reality is that I don't know about you, but I'm not eating broccoli, Brussels sprouts. uh, I'm not eating like cauliflower. I'm not eating all those foods in.
1: A raw state. I'm usually steaming them. When I was a when I was a raw vegan, I would blend all of those things and I'd chop them finely. And my salad was a head of broccoli, a head of cauliflower, you know, half a cabbage. I, had, I bought these giant bowls because, like, I'm a big muscular guy. Try and get enough calories. You know, this. Uh, we, you and I probably disagree on nutrient density, just because I'm like I I actually think that using water or volume is that is not that not that meaningful. Um, so I want actual nutrients and the amount that I can put in my body, and I couldn't get enough of this food to make myself full. So I was eating huge amounts of cruciferous vegetables, and I did get thyroid suppression. Was it caused by that or something else, like a lack of saturated fat in my th- I have no idea. But yeah. so this is n equals one and not definitive. But but encouraging people to to eat, to eat to eat more green vegetables is just a really really great idea, and you and I fully agree there. Um, yeah. But not necessarily the ones that taste like Brussels sprouts raw are just gross. Like, yeah, I mean, it just doesn't make
2: sense. Like, why would you eat Brussels sprouts raw? Like, I, I don't know if any human that is, like, consciously doing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the thing is, like, there are, so, I mean, it's one, of those, it's one of those discussions where, you know, people freak out about, oh, my God, it's going to hurt my thyroid. But let's, let's, let's consider something that the cruciferous vegetables are probably the most important vegetables for preventing cancer. Yeah. And there's so much research showing that like, um, like even cabbage, uh, and I'm a huge fan of sauerkraut, so I make my own sauerkraut at home. One serving, uh, I can't remember the exact data, I can pull it up if I wanted to, but um, it, it's like one serving of cabbage per week decreases the rate of uh, breast cancer by like 30% or something like that. It was like they showed studies where they yeah. had traditionally the normal of fruits and vegetables to have throughout the week would you know, be this and it would decrease your amount or your risk of cancer by this. And then I basically say, well, we tr- we tested half of that amount in cruciferous vegetables, and it led to a greater decrease in risk of of you know various cancers. So it's like, well, if you're avoiding these foods because you think that they're hurting your thyroid, which they're really not, if unless you're eating pounds and pounds of them a day, you're you're really doing your body a disservice by missing out on all these
1: amazing health promoting properties. I, I yeah. would say uh, you, know. uh, um, you might want to cook the majority of them, but not all of them because there's benefits to raw. But, not. but if you are the kind of person like me who would make a smoothie out of raw uh, raw Brussels sprouts, and I've done that because you think it's good for you, I, I question that. Like, There's a reason your body doesn't want you to eat them raw. It's okay to steam them lightly and add some good stuff to them and make a meal out of it. Yeah. And And that's also, for most people though, like, like when they eat Brussels sprouts, they go to uh, a steakhouse that deep fries them until they're blackened in canola oil that's been recycled for two weeks. Like, I ate my vegetables, I'm doing so well. And like <laughs> that's, This that's is not, not the same behavior. <laughs> oh darn, it. I, I made a mistake. <laughs> what, what do you think about burned vegetables? Like, like I get grilled vegetables at some places where they're just blackened on the outside, especially Brussels sprouts. Like they're the yeah. ones, the vegetable they like to torture the most. What's your take on burning vegetables?
2: I think burning anything is probably not a good idea because yeah. it's that char, it's the charring of the carbohydrate that's an issue, mm-hmm. whether it's meats or or toast or it's that burning, charring, that glycosylation, um, that that's a big issue when it comes to the development of cancer and other issues yeah. in the body. So, yeah, definitely, really want to avoid that.
1: It. It's interesting. Um, you and I, we actually don't agree on everything uh, in our recommendations, uh, which is fine. I, I love having people on the show. Uh, Joel Kahn was just on. He's you know, advocating a low-fat diet, but but there's all sorts of cool stuff. And, and I'm the first guy, if you read the fine print, it says, I guarantee something on the Bulletproof website is wrong. I'm doing my best here, but I, there are things that we just don't know uh, or things where like there's a, a division of opinion here. So this is one thing where I suspect that if you and I both had the same set of ingredients, then I would probably cook more of mine than yours, but we both have some raw, we'd probably both have some cooked.
2: Yeah, maybe, and to be honest, like I mean, um, my approach is, like, eat more plant-based foods. I'm not like, you can totally follow, you know, your approach with that, um, and have more of them in their raw state. So, this, like basically, what that means is, like, make a big salad with your meal, have a green juice, make a green smoothie, and that's, and just, like, you know, that's it. Like, it doesn't have to be more complex than that. You don't have to become a raw vegan for that. I was raw... Uh, a number of years ago, and I felt great for a little while, and then I was like, "Well, I don't know if I can really sustain this." And I was like, "Yeah." So everyone's individual, but I think fundamentally, as a species, we we do better with vegetables because yeah, remember, I like agree. plants produce phytonutrients to protect themselves against the environment. So when we eat those, we basically um, those those kind of those benefits are transferred over to us. That's why, like vitamin C, for instance, in organic vegetables is higher than non-organic vegetables because the plant produces more vitamin C to protect itself. So when we eat these nutrients, we are just ingesting all those benefits and uh, that's just a great thing.
1: That's one of the reasons that like herbs and spices are so important. They're so pungent because they're like super powerful for protecting themselves. So you want to get that pungency, that bitterness, that spice because it actually delivers stuff to your gut biome as well as to your body itself. So I couldn't agree more with you there, Yuri. Yeah. You do something else that's that's kind of cool, and you call it neural fine-tuning, and and hacking your nervous system is something that's just cool in every way, at least from where I sit. So, what's your approach to uh, basically fine-tuning your nervous system? You have a morning practice, I think, that listeners will love to hear about.
2: Yeah, so, it's funny, because I was just at a Tony Robbins event this past weekend, and it's just, you know, it, it's so interesting how so many things uh, in different spaces kind of come together, and... Now, a lot of what I teach uh, is very similar to what Tony <clears throat> talks about. And one of the things was like emotion comes from motion. So if you feel kind of like crappy and depressed, well, look at how you're using your body. Are you just kind of slouched forward? Is your head down? What, what's your facial expression like? And if you want to feel the opposite of that, then simply just sit up taller, shoulders back, put a smile on your face. These are simple things that our biology or like our, our muscles, so our, our physical body can change our neurology and essentially how we experience the world, simply by smiling instead of frowning. It's like a really simple thing. So in the morning, what I like to do is, first thing is I gotta get my body moving. So actually the first thing I do is I'll I'll do about 10 minutes of meditation. So I kind of prime my body for the day ahead and kind of my life ahead. So I start off with uh, just a couple deep, kind of a couple of breathing exercises. It takes me about two minutes just to kind of get oxygen into my system. And then what I'll do is I'll just go through a series of gratitude and uh, visualization processes to just ground myself and kind of project love and all this other stuff and to just kind of visualize, you know, what are the most important things I want to do today and moving forward. Once that's done, it's like, okay, let's get the body moving. So I'll do some uh, dynamic exercises to just kind of open up my, you know, my hips, my upper body. And, you know, staying supple is really important to me because it's not just about being strong and fit. I want to be, I want to touch my toes. I want to be able to, you know, have great range of motion. And that, that is, uh, that lessens the more you sit. So, you know, if you're sitting at a desk all day or sitting on your couch, your muscle, your body's just seizing up. So, I like to do things that are getting the body active, getting the body moving. And there's really cool things. Um, I don't know if you know Eric Cobb from Z Health. Oh, yeah. Eric's a buddy. I love Eric. He's amazing. You know, so I had a shoulder injury a number of years ago from tennis. He took me through four exercises, some kind of nerve flossing stuff. And within a day, it was just gone. So I, I'll do these kind of nerve flossing exercises in my upper and lower body just to kind of open up my joints, allow a better range of motion, just kind of feeling better overall. And the cool thing is that um, – Because everything ultimately comes from the brain, as you're doing a nerve flossing exercise, for instance, for your biceps or for your shoulder, you're actually improving communication between your body and your brain. And what I've noticed is that it actually helps focus. So, I'll do a couple of those nerve flossing exercises before I start working, and then my my focus mentally is a lot sharper. So, that's typically, I'll spend the first 20 minutes of my day doing that kind of stuff, and then throughout the day, every 30 minutes to an hour at the most, I'm getting up, I'm jumping on my rebounder. I'm doing some more dynamic exercises. I'm doing push-ups, I'm doing pull-ups, like what I call micro movements throughout the day just to stay limber because I work out maybe four times a week at the gym or at home with you know with weights, but that's not enough to counteract the effect of sitting or just sedentaryism being sedentary. So being active on a kind of a, a low level throughout the day is very important. Walking, taking the stairs, get up, standing at your desk instead of sitting. These are all things in the long run that I believe are much more important than just working out a couple times the week. And research shows even going to the gym five days a week does not counteract, or sorry, counteract the effect of sitting for eight to nine hours a day. So it's um, yeah, it's pretty pronounced. So those are the couple of things that I do to
1: kind of prime my nervous system and, and get it going. So would you recommend like lounging instead of sitting to take the pressure off your butt? Is that well, it's interesting because. <laughs> You're like
2: sitting, uh, we're not meant to sit, obviously, because we're sitting no. on our <laughs> tailbone. I say standing is obviously best, but when you think about lying down, I think a lot of again coming back to energy, when we when we feel the most tired, we we end up lying down. We don't want to stand; we yeah. want to lie down. And I think part of the reason for that is because our our heart doesn't have to work as hard to pump blood against gravity. It's true. So if we're lying down, that's you know temporarily okay in terms of restoring energy. But if we're always lying down or in a, in a horizontal position, we're essentially getting our heart lazy. And that's why something as simple as standing more often throughout the day can be a great thing for your heart because now your heart has to always oh, like, oh my God, I got to move blood six feet as opposed to no feet. And just the act of standing can now kind of prime your heart and the muscles in your lower body to start really pumping the blood back up to your head, which just by itself can be a big thing for a lot of people.
1: Yeah, the... Yeah, uh, the idea of of standing and versus like sitting properly, like like there's there's whole schools of thought about well you're sitting wrong, you're crossing your legs, you're not doing this, and but I watch my kids. The reason I asked you about lounging there was, was partly because it was funny, but also partly because like I watch my my five year old, my seven year old, and like they'll lay on their stomach and and they'll do stuff, and they'll get up and they'll run around, and, and then they'll sit down. But sitting isn't natural for them, but laying seems more natural than sitting for kids, mm. uh, versus you know, that weird you know fold yourself into a chair and I I, I've never seen a a standing desk that adjusts from lounging like laying on your stomach working on your elbows desk all the way to standing and I've never tried that but I I almost wonder if if that might be a better choice and I thought you might know something about that you know I I mean I'll take my laptop and I'll just work on the floor sometimes
0: yeah
2: that's it I'm just kind of like getting my back into extension and uh you know alleviating
1: some of that stress so that's I mean sometimes I'll do that there's also the proprioceptors in your joints, right? You know, they, they sense motion, they sense pressure and all. And there's probably value from feeling the floor when you lay on the floor versus like laying on the world's fluffiest mattress. Or like, there's a signal that should be coming to your body that isn't coming in when you do that. So I, I often wonder about those little tweaks and whether there's like a whole universe of best practice that, that is somewhere between standing and sitting. And sure. uh, yeah. maybe we'll get the data someday. Indeed, we will. What's your deal with training What what should people do for optimal results? So we're talking about like workouts, like physical training. Yeah.
2: So I think uh, I'm I'm definitely in the camp that less is more, and that uh, quality over quantity. So basically just what I said, but intensity is very important. So it's a catch twenty two because intensity will kill you uh, if you do too much of it. So intensity and duration are inversely related. The higher the intensity, the lower the duration. So you can run a marathon, but you can't sprint for two hours, right? So that's why you can only sprint for ten or twelve seconds. The benefit, uh, again, I played pro soccer, so much of how I trained was explosive training. I was a goalie, so I didn't I didn't do much during the games, but in training, it was very explosive training. Ten to you know ten to fifteen seconds, full out, and then recover, and then we go again. And if you look at sprinters, if you look at a lot of the most powerful athletes in the world, a lot of the the leanest athletes in the world that don't look like they're going to fall apart because they're running hundreds of miles wow. a week—they're incorporating high intensity, lower volume. I remember when I was at the University of Toronto, uh, I used to watch the sprinters train, and this is basically so sprinters used to train. I'm, I'm going to use a short example. So they—they'd be sitting on the bench by the track, and they'd just be like looking at their phone, just like talking to somebody on the phone for like ten minutes, and then the next thing you know, it's like like sprints, you know, after they kind of warm up a little bit and then they're back on the bench talking to somebody or reading a book and I'm like, how's this this doing anything? But again, at the complete one end of the spectrum, we have, they are training their nervous system to respond at 100% of its ability. So they need lots of rest and recovery. So they're not going to wear themselves down. They need every single rep to be at 100%. You know, you train, you get what you train. So they're training to be at 100%. I think for most people, we're not obviously sprinters, but I think we can take elements of what these guys do, what these athletes do, and bring it down to our level. So I think, and what I've done with hundreds of thousands of people, and probably more than 1,200 elite athletes, is focus on less or fewer workouts, so I would say about four times a week, and anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes is all you need. So if we're talking about the goal of getting lean, strong, and burning fat, that's that's my that's my thing. I don't I don't I don't deal with people who want to build mads, you know, mounds of muscle. So if that's the goal, if burning fat is the goal, staying strong and lean is the goal, you need to be using big movements. So you're getting your body very metabolically active, using large muscle groups. And the simplest way to remember this is, is a simple physics equation. Work equals force times displacement. So work is the amount of work you do or kind of the number of calories you burn. Force is how much force you generate either moving your body weight or a weight, and then distance is distance. So if you do a bicep curl with 20 pounds, you're doing a 20 pound bicep curl, let's say over one foot, versus taking those 20 pounds from the floor to above your head. That's a very different metabolic exercise. So you're getting a lot of muscles involved, you're moving that same weight over a greater distance, so you get more kind of caloric benefit in that same amount of time. So, as it pertains to burning fat and really engaging as many muscles as possible, that's the way to do it. And when you do that, instead of doing, okay, today I'm going to do triceps and back and biceps and chest, when you're focusing your workouts around full body movements where you don't have a lot of rest in between, you're able to get a lot more done. So, more density in less time. And that's a huge benefit for saving time in the gym, getting more muscles involved, which is ultimately going to burn more calories. And... It's very important for women to understand you have to be lifting heavier weights. You cannot be lifting yeah. weights for like 20 reps. That's a waste of time. Women do not have the same genetic hormonal makeup as men, so you're not going to bulk up like we do. And so you want to keep your repetitions to within, I'd say, four to eight repetitions max. That means that you need to be lifting a weight that only allows you to do four or five, six, seven, eight reps. If you're doing anything that's, uh, if, if you're able to get to the eighth rep and you're like, oh, I can do a couple more, then increase the weight. When you do that, you're going to stimulate more muscle fibers, which is going to have a lot of benefits for strength, for caloric expenditure, and uh, it's, it's just the smartest way to train. And I'm, It's amazing that's, that people, especially women, are still spending so much time and kind of so scared of lifting heavier weights when it's proven to be the most effective way to burn fat, but also to strengthen your bones. So if you're somebody who's worried about osteoporosis, you need to be using heavier weights, and that's, that's the best way to do it. So, three to four times a week, full body exercises, heavier weights, get to a point where you're huffing and puffing a little bit, and really kind of you feel your body generating heat. And those benefits are going to last for a long time after the workout, not just during the workout. So, what I call passive fat loss.
1: And, and you're not concerned about adrenal fatigue on four times a week. I mean, do you have people doing that protocol, looking at their eyes? I, I find you need a lot of recovery to do that much.
2: Yeah, and so again, four times would be the, the max. I'm usually recommending people, like most of the workout programs a developer three times a week. Okay. Um, but again, if you have adrenal fatigue and uh, you know you have adrenal fatigue, I would say those type of workouts are probably not the way to go because you need to, if you're doing that same, you can still do a full body movement, but instead of doing like a circuit training fashion where you're going like one exercise to the next to the next to the next with little rest, if you have adrenal fatigue, like I remember when I was, Going through uh, adrenal fatigue a while ago, I, I mean, I, I couldn't train the same way I yeah. did, bef- like I did before when I was playing soccer. And I was like, okay, well, I've got. What am I going to do here? So you have to re- you have to spend more time recovering. You essentially have to train like the sprinter. You do an exercise, you still lift a good heavy weight, but you need to give yourself a good amount of time until you're fully recovered before you go again. And that's a really important distinction for people to understand. So if you have adrenal fatigue. Exercise is a stress, right? So you need to really kind of keep that in check, and uh, that's why I think programs—I uh, won't mention any names—but a lot of the ones you see on infomercials, where it's like two hours a day, seven days a week, to get the best shape of your life—that
1: might—that's probably true. But what happens after ninety days? Uh, there's one I, I don't even remember which one is like we took. We took interval training and and we turned it upside down. So like the whole time you're at high intensity, except for these little briefs. And, and I'm like, this is going to wreck you. Just like like a raw vegan diet after three or six months of that, you might feel good at first, but it, it's not going to end well. Yeah. In, in either one of those things, like yeah, that that just my jaw dropped when I heard that. I'm like, this this isn't going to work. But you might look good for a little while.
2: Yeah. So I mean, I I think the 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 workout itself is a stimulus but then your body has to recover and it has to rest. And that's why you do these short bouts of 20 to 30 minutes of activity three times a week. The rest of the time is recovery. So it's like good quality sleep, You're doing things like yoga, stretching, foam rolling, walking, just staying active. And those are really important because it's, it's, it's the rest. It's like the 80-20 rule. It's like 80% of the time should be spent in recovery mode or just kind of just lightly moving your body. Because if it's the other way around, it's like driving a car at like 7,000 RPMs, like you're going to burn out. It's, yeah. You're going to kill yourself.
1: And uh, we don't want people to do that no matter what uh, dietary philosophy or exercise philosophy they're doing. It just the people who are nearing burnout, they tend to get angry and snippy and they attack other people and they're, they're mean online. And, and generally, it doesn't lead to, ha- to a happy place for anyone. Not at all. So Yuri, there's a question that everyone who's been on the show gets asked. And it's one that you may expect to be coming, but given all the stuff that we just talked about, all the stuff that you know, and you've been a pro athlete and and you've trained lots of people, the top three most important things for people who want to kick more ass, what would you say? Uh,
2: I would say first and foremost is like get your own stuff together. Um, Basically what I mean by that is spend time on yourself, figure out what really drives you in life and spend more time doing that. If you spend more time in your passion, you're naturally going to feel more energized and you're going to feel happier. So spend time figuring out what that what that is for you. And if you know what it is, spend more time doing it because that's really important. If you're working in a job that you hate, I'm not saying quit your job, but you may want to consider like really exploring what really kind of jazzes you up because that's that's the essence of life in terms of like feeling fulfilled. So that's that's I think the foundation is very important to just kind of follow your bliss. Um, second is uh, just again. From a nutritional perspective, is create a foundation of plant-based awesomeness. So get a lot of greens into your body, just raise the alkalinity inside your body. You're gonna you're gonna feel instantaneously better uh, within like 24 to 48 hours. I mean, I've seen this thousands and thousands of people, and it doesn't matter if you're having like, you know, if you're following like your plan, which is like high fats or whatever it is, just getting more greens in, more green juices, all that great stuff is tremendous. And third, would be to um just just like again like there's so many things but i would say probably just move more like think about instead of thinking about working out just think about moving more so even if you never go to the gym hey can you go for a walk on a daily basis can you stand instead of sit all day can you you know just do some exercises here and there that keep your body moving and limber and and, and just moving. So I think that's a really important distinction to, to move away from using the gym as this way of repenting our sins from sitting all day to just being a little bit more active on a day-to-day basis. I think in the long run, that's probably going to be more beneficial than just, I'm only going to go to the gym you know, a couple times a week.
1: Makes great sense. Yuri, thanks for, for being on the show. Will you tell people where they can find you, find your latest book? Yeah,
2: so uh, we've got a lot of properties online. The best place is probably my blog, which is yurielcame.com. And so you can grab my book, The All-Day Energy Diet, which is right there. Uh, You can grab that on Amazon or any bookstore. And um, yeah, it's probably the two best places. Thanks, Yuri.
1: Absolutely, buddy. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode of Bulletproof Radio... I'd like you to go out there and check out Yuri's book because that's why we have guests like Yuri on. So you can go out there and learn what they're doing. And I really do my best to bring you leading edge thinkers. People who are thinking outside the box and doing things that are uncommon, but uncommonly good. While you're at it, pick up a copy of the Bulletproof Diet book and they make a great pairing. (laughs) Have an awesome day and I'll be back shortly with another episode for you.